you, Jason. Uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this afternoon. We thank you, Lord, that we can be found in your house to worship you. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would use your word tonight. Uh, may it uh, work in our hearts, uh, Lord, so that we can respond in a way that pleases you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 33. The outback town of Ulara in the Northern Territory has one road leading into it and therefore one road leading out. If someone were to travel to Ulara today, there's only one way that they can leave by turning around. Each of us, when we are born, arrives in a town called Sin. As in Ulara, there's only one way out, a road built by God himself. But in order to take that road, one must first turn around. That complete turnaround is what the Bible calls repentance, and without it, there's no way out of town. Today, it's common to hear about people feeling remorse because they were caught, or because they realized the consequences. It's like stopping on the road into town, but you haven't really left yet. Real repentance has two crucial parts turning away and turning towards. When I was much younger, um, and a few of you who have siblings would relate to this, if I got in trouble bullying my sisters, my parents would say, say sorry, and I would say sorry. Um, and then they would say, did you mean that? And often, I didn't really, I just said sorry. But repentance isn't just saying sorry. Repentance is turning away and turning towards. More on repentance a little later, but first let's turn to our passage tonight. Here we read of King Manasseh in the southern kingdom of Judah, around 600 or just over 600 years before Jesus Christ comes to earth. After King David, there came King Solomon, and after King Solomon, the nation has split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. But now, by the time of Manasseh, the northern kingdom has been destroyed. Because of their utter wickedness, God sent the Assyrians to capture the northern kingdom. But meanwhile, Judah carried on for some time. Some, had good, some were good kings and some were evil kings. Hezekiah, Manasseh's father, was one of the good kings, and we read that in the previous chapter. But now we come to King Manasseh. Judah has been through a time of blessing, mostly due to King Hezekiah. Hezekiah led Israel back to a sincere worship of the one true God. Though he wasn't a perfect man, Hezekiah put his trust in God. He did experience many trials, personal trials, political trials, but Hezekiah always cried out to the Lord. During the ministry of Isaiah the prophet, Hezekiah called on Isaiah to pray for the nation. God powerfully delivered the southern kingdom, and even though Hezekiah had his flaws, he was still a good king. 
But what about Manasseh? Manasseh was the child of a godly father, the son of King Hezekiah, who, despite all his flaws, was sound in heart towards God. Hezekiah is recorded in the scriptures as a king who wrought that which was good and right before the Lord his God. He was mighty in prayer and sought deliverance from God in times of invasion. What a blessing then that this young prince had a godly father to train his tender mind. Such a blessed start to life makes Manasseh's later sin all the more terrible. In the second verse, we read that Manasseh did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. However, I think we shouldn't forget also that Manasseh was born to Hezekiah in his later years. From the previous chapter, we read that Manasseh was an heir who was born after Hezekiah expected to die without any children. I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that Manasseh might have been a spoilt child. It's highly likely that Manasseh was allowed to have his own way. The prince, who seemed to have been born under such favourable circumstances to produce godly character, lost his father. And as a boy of 12 years, Manasseh was thrust into the position of king. No doubt there were good people whom Hezekiah gathered in the royal court, but they couldn't impress this child king as well as the evil ones who had been repressed for a while. Though Hezekiah set up public worship and had done his best to remove and wipe out idolatry, it was far from extinct, and the kingdom of Judah was still very much following false gods. Isaiah said in his opening chapter, he describes the condition of the land, saying, Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like Gomorrah. The nation wasn't steadfast like King Hezekiah. It worshipped God when commanded by the king, but now it was ready to turn to other idols. The mere child, Manasseh, being placed in circumstances of danger, was led astray, and then he became a leader in sin. So our first point, Manasseh built. In the first half of this chapter, we get a description of Manasseh's sins. In verse 2, we, we've read that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a description of his life as a whole. If you took his 55-year reign, even despite the repentance that we read later on, that's how you sum up Manasseh's life. Yes, he was of the Davidic line. Yes, he was descended from King David. David's blood was in his veins, but David's ways weren't in his heart. Now, it's interesting here that we're told how Manasseh is being compared. With some of Judah's kings, the Bible describes them as doing evil in the sight of the Lord like the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. Or, sometimes, they did evil in the sight of the Lord like their father. But look here, Manasseh is compared to the surrounding nations. What a condemnation. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. It seems that Manasseh had modelled his reign after those that God cast off and thrown away for their unrepentant sin. 
Manasseh was an expert rebel. Not only did he do what the pagan nations did, but he went beyond. We read in verse 9, So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err, and to do worse than the heathen. The wickedness of this king was worse than that of even pagan nations. They sinned in ignorance, but Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, sinned with an uplifted hand. He sinned in open rebellion against God. But it doesn't stop there. I think it's useful for us to go through the details of Manasseh's sin. Not only did Manasseh take for his model pagan kings, pagan idols, pagan societies, not only did Manasseh take a leaf out of the nation's book around Judah, he reversed all that his father had done. Repeatedly, we read of what Manasseh built. He built up the high places which Hezekiah, his father, broke down. He found glory in actively building up what his father threw down and throwing down what his father built up. In verse 4 and 5, we read that he built altars and made a mockery of God's temple. He built altars not to worship Jehovah, but to worship the hosts of heaven, the sun, the stars. Manasseh had contempt for the worship of the true God. And what infinite patience did God have that he bore such an insult as this? Yes, there were hills and valleys around Judah, but they weren't enough for Manasseh's idols. Must God's very own temple also be profaned? Yet Manasseh dared to do this, carrying rebellion against the Lord to utmost extremes. In verse 6, he sacrificed children and he practiced witchcraft. Another example is the treatment of children. He wasn't satisfied with sinning himself in public worship. His children were handed over to the evil one. This evil king was greedy in sinful pursuits. He couldn't have enough of them. He enlisted witches, wizards. He practiced enchantments. Manasseh, who wouldn't believe in God, could freely yield his faith to the devil. How sad! And how horrible to see a mind capable of thought and reason bowing at the feet of witches. But there's more in verse 7. He built idols and he mocked God's temple again. We read in verse 7 that Manasseh repeated these sins and exaggerated them. After one forbidden idol had been enshrined, he set up even more. And after building altars in the courts of the temple, he went further and set a carved image in the house of God. Thus Manasseh piled up his sins, all the while leading hundreds of thousands of people with him. Both by his influence and authority, he was compelling the nation to blaspheme. The whole land followed its king, except perhaps a remnant. If one of the Israelites were to do all the things that we read here, that would have been bad enough. But Manasseh wasn't any Israelite. He was the king of Judah. He had a responsibility to lead the people in God's ways. Instead, he led them in the opposite direction. That's clear from verse 9. He was a leader in wickedness. Not only did he personally do worse than the nations around, but he led his people to be worse. He ensnared them into deeper unbelief and rebellion. A few wept and sighed in secret. 
A few spoke often one to another, but they had no power to change the sad state of things, for King Manasseh was too strong for them. Royal example is infectious. Maybe tonight you're sitting here and perhaps your life leads others astray. Are you in a position of influence? Perhaps you're a parent with children about you. Perhaps you're the foreman on site, the manager of a team, so that what you say and what you do leads others on. Well then, you have the power to sin a hundred times at once, for you make others commit the sin in which you indulge. Think of this and beware. Why would we destroy others as well as ourselves? Don't say yes to being a net in the devil's hand to ensnare others too. But there's more in verse 10. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. There was reproof from God, but Manasseh refused it. He didn't sin without being divinely warned. God did try the bit and bridle upon him, but it was no use, for this wild horse took the bit between his teeth and crushed it. He wouldn't, couldn't bow before the loving admonition of God. But they would not hearken, says verse 10. They didn't obey the warnings of the prophets. They didn't believe that consequences would come from their rebellion. Life would just go on. They would keep worshipping idols, having their fun, and nothing would change. There's now maybe one more finishing touch to this dark picture. And though it's not recorded in the Chronicles, you'll find this in 2 Kings chapter 21, that Manasseh persecuted the people of God furiously. Manasseh wasn't just content to pursue sin more than the pagan nations. He wasn't content just to reverse his father's work. He wasn't content just to make a mockery of God's holy temple, or to lead the people to evil, or to reject God's prophets. Second Kings 21 says that Manasseh shed innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end of it to another. Manasseh was so zealous in carrying out his idolatries that he could not endure the sight or the sound of the remnant, those who would not bow before his images. He hated those who protested against such wickedness. He hated the prophets, those who continued living holy lives separate unto God. And so Manasseh made laws to put them down. So that, and we read this in 2 Kings, the worshippers of Jehovah were stoned, sawn asunder, destitute, afflicted, tormented. This evil king was a bloody persecutor throughout all his life. Persecution is one of the worst of sins and greatly provokes God. For we even read, God said that he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of my eye. As it were, Manasseh thrust his finger into the eye of God. This was a heaven-provoking crime. You have here a king, and he's supposed to be God's servant, and he's supposed to bless God's people. But instead, he's a servant of the devil, to mislead and be a curse to his people. He's the opposite of his father, Hezekiah. Hezekiah pointed forwards to Christ with his reforms and his love for righteousness. Manasseh's rebellion pointed away from Christ 
threatening to derail redemption altogether. In verse 10, it seems that Manasseh is a dead end. The royal line of Judah will end in sin. But here we are now, brethren. Today we share in Christ's anointing as king. Christ fought against sin and the devil, and he was victorious. Christ conquered these enemies. And because we can be joined to him, we too can be called to fight against sin and the devil in this life. Some are even called to be leaders in this. We can think especially of the fathers among us. Fathers are called to lead and bless the children by showing them, leading them, how to flee and fight sin. Do we chase after it? Or worse, are we a leader in sin? If so, God's word of warning comes to you from Second Chronicles. Because he still cares, the Lord speaks to you and he says, This is the path of Manasseh, and it led him and the people astray. They heard the word, they paid no attention. What about you? Manasseh built a life and a kingdom of sin from the ground up. What kind of life are you building? What kind of influence are you on others around you? Dear brethren, the broad path of Manasseh's rebellion is littered with spiritual corpses. We must see that. We must see that it's so much better to hear God's reproofs, his loving warnings. It's striking that at this point, God doesn't give up on Manasseh and his people. If they won't listen to his word, God sends the Assyrian army their way. That's what happens in verse 11, the turning point in our story. Manasseh besought the Lord. We don't know how the events unfolded that brought the Assyrians to Judah. We don't even read this in 2 Kings 21. But what's important is that God brought them upon King Manasseh and his people. The very first readers of these books of Chronicles would have understood something immediately. Back then, someone reading the Chronicles would read of Assyria and shudder. The Assyrians were a brutal people. They were like an entire empire of murderers. So, when verse 11 says that the Assyrian army came against the people of Judah, there would have been much violence and suffering. A quick death would have been merciful. As king of Judah, Manasseh didn't simply get killed. Instead, the Assyrians made sure he was properly shamed and humiliated. Later down through history, Jesus Christ would also be greatly humiliated at the hands of pagan soldiers. But Jesus wouldn't deserve it. Jesus would endure it for great sinners like Manasseh and us. Manasseh's humiliation continues. He's bound in fetters, verse 11 tells us. This is where his slavery to sin has led him. He was spiritually chained up, and now he's physically chained, suffering. These fetters, they're rough, they're heavy, they cut into the skin. Manasseh doesn't get any special treatment because he's the king. Instead, the Assyrians humiliate this king as much as possible. They took him to Babylon, the Bible says. Why Babylon? These are the Assyrians. Their capital is Nineveh. That's why Jonah was sent to Nineveh. 
but Manasseh is taken to Babylon. That gets our attention. From many historical sources, there seemed to be a power struggle going on in the empire at this time. Babylon was a rising power. But there's something else. Babylon is also where the people of Judah eventually end up, a few generations later. This is a foretaste of that. God is saying to his people, this is where you'll end up if you don't return to me. The important thing to see here is that God extends his grace. He withholds utterly destroying Judah immediately. That's God's mercy. And then God reproves his people. That's his grace. Now, Manasseh was a prodigal son in real life in a far country where he would have gladly filled his belly with the husks that pigs ate. While chained up in prison, his thoughts would have turned to how vain it was now to cry out to Baal. How vain it was now to cry out to the sun. The stars that he foolishly worshipped now peered through the bars of his dungeon, powerless to save him. Evil spirits were nowhere to be seen now. Magic, with its deceitful wonders, could not release him. No witches, no wizards with their enchantments came to his aid. There Manasseh lay. And verse 12 tells us what he did next. He besought, or that he pled, with the God of his fathers. Manasseh humbled himself greatly. He had dishonored his father Hezekiah, as well as his God. But now Manasseh's heart turned to his godly ancestors and their holy faith. We can, again, make the parallel with the prodigal son of the New Testament. Manasseh's desire to return to his father's faith bears some likeness to the spiritual resolve of the prodigal son, who said, I will arise and go unto my father. Manasseh thinks, meditates, considers his life, and he loathes himself. He remembers how his father prospered by Jehovah God's aid, and perhaps also how God heard his father's prayer when he was near death and granted more years to live. In the dungeon, Manasseh cried out to God in hope. Dear friend, will you not cry out also to this same God who you have offended? Will you not say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? But notice what else went with his prayer. If you seek the mercy of God, it must be coupled with humility. Manasseh humbled himself greatly. Yes, he had been a great king. He was the mighty Manasseh who got his way and dared defy the Lord to his face. But now Manasseh sings another song. He lies low and pleads his case as a sinner. Now he would use the language of his forefather David. Have mercy upon me, O God, and blot out my transgressions. What a broken prayer Manasseh's must have been. And what groans would have been heard and seen by God as this man now sought God's face. Let this too be your frame of mind tonight, dear friend. Consider the shame, the embarrassment, the guilt of your sin. Don't press it down. Don't push it away. Confront and confess it with mourning and humility. The Hebrew word that this word besought comes from means one who is entreating or beseeching in weakness. Manasseh's heart posture is that of utter humility. 
Brethren, the Lord then heard Manasseh. Glory to God, for he heard his cry. Blood-stained hands were lifted to heaven, and yet the Lord accepted this prayer. Verse 19 tells us that God heard Manasseh's prayer concerning his sins, a heart that had been the palace of Satan, a heart which had brought forth cruelty, a heart that now humbled itself before God. And the Lord pardoned this repentant prisoner. The Lord moved the king of Assyria to take Manasseh out of prison and restore him to his throne. The Lord does great marvels and shows great mercy unto the very chief of sinners. Oh, that this might persuade some to seek the gracious God tonight. Manasseh didn't have such a clear revelation as we have today. When we want to recommend a doctor to a friend who is very ill, often it's good to mention some successful treatments that this doctor has experience with. Maybe there are doubts, but these successful treatments tell a good story, a compelling story. Perhaps tonight you know that you are in great danger of death, of the things that follow this earthly life. But you are filled with doubt as to the possibility of salvation because of sin. You may think to yourself, sin has caught up to me. I'm a lost cause now. It's too late for me. Dear friend, tonight, if I could set before you this example of a wonderfully true story of salvation, perhaps it will encourage hope in your hearts, in Jesus Christ. We may learn guiding principles from the Old Testament like Manasseh, who in the depths of despair and his repentance rescued him from the brink of death. But for us who live on this side of Christ and the cross, we are saved under a different law than that of Manasseh. Hebrews 9 says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. Jesus Christ is superior to the old animal sacrifices. They only provided ritual purity. But Jesus Christ offers a single permanent salvation that covers the eternal death penalty for all sin. The cure for this old sin disease is superior to even what Manasseh found. God is ready to pardon tonight. Come even now and seek his face. How I hope that you will know how ready Jesus is to save you. If you only knew how eager Jesus is to have mercy upon the guilty. And now we come to Manasseh repaired. Now, can you picture Manasseh going back from Babylon, attended by Assyrian soldiers? The poor believers in Jerusalem had little respite while he was captive. Perhaps they even ventured to the temple and restored the worship of God. But now the word on the street was that wicked King Manasseh was coming back. The hunter of souls was again on the move. I wonder how the dread will have seized the minds of the godly and how strongly they readied themselves for the conflict ahead. More stoning, more killings, more perverse sins. Can it be that these horrors were to return? What a day of foreboding it must have been when King Manasseh walked through the city gates. But perhaps some of them watched him. And when he passed by a shrine of Baal, they noticed 
that he did not bow. The image of Ashtaroth stood in the high place, but they observed that he turned away his head as though he would not look. And what was their joy when they then read his proclamation that from henceforth Judah should worship Jehovah God alone? What joy amongst the faithful remnant that the king himself had come over to their side? What triumph was felt by the saints when the king sent the cleansers to the temple to pull down the images? Manasseh did his best to undo what he had done, to restore what he had damaged. For those who are truly repentant show it practically. Otherwise, that repentance is not genuine. Or the evil that we have done, we must labour to remedy. Otherwise, our repentance is just skin deep. The repentance that does not transform the life is no repentance at all. In, Man in Manasseh's case, he began hating sin and fighting against it the way he should have done all along. By God's grace as a king, Manasseh began to reflect the image of Jesus, who would then be born from this bloodline centuries later. Manasseh believed in his heart that the Lord, he was God, all because of God's grace. But there's still sadness as this chapter closes. Manasseh's restoration was not the people's restoration. In about 300 AD, in the days of Constantine, he issued the Edict of Milan, which was the legal end of persecution on the church. It announced the acceptance of Christianity far and wide. In 324 AD, an imperial announcement was proclaimed that ordered all soldiers to worship the supreme God. This became the seed of the Roman Empire, officially designated a Christian empire. At this point, many were baptized and brought into the church. You would think at this point of the story, that's all good news. But sadly, those who came into the church brought their pagan practices into the church. The hearts of those in the Holy Roman Empire were not changed. There was no conviction. There was no repentance. And this is exactly what happened with Manasseh's kingdom. Though verse 16 tells us Manasseh commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel, the following verse says that the people still sacrificed in high places. They're sorry was not genuine. They continued in their idolatrous ways, only they changed the name of the God that they worshipped. They changed the name, but they didn't change their practice. While the heart in the palace changed, the heart of the people was not changed. The way they worshipped was still pagan, not how Jehovah had commanded. Sadly, that's the case with people today. Many have a name that they are a Christian but they haven't been converted in their hearts. Externally, they may attend church. They may sing praises to the name of Jesus. But in the end, they had no real change of heart. They didn't turn around. But a change of heart is what's needed. Repentance is what's needed to transform lives. Now a few final words. First, adore the divine grace of God. Never limit its power, but believe that God can and will save the most wretched sinner. 
believe that God is willing, yea, even yearning, to save you. Since our Lord Jesus ever lives to intercede for those who come to God by him, he is able also to save them. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Secondly, never turn it into an excuse for continuing in sin. For this case of Manasseh, with all its mercy, is still a sad one. Though we have seen how grace gave it a good ending, yet it is still a sad case. Manasseh's life was spent, wasted, full of sin. Although he tried to make amends, he couldn't fully undo what he had done. Spurgeon once said this, sin and hell are married unless repentance proclaims the divorce. The repentance of Manasseh proclaimed the divorce of his sin and hell. It can do for you too, tonight. Before being saved, we sin. But that sin doesn't prevent us from justification. After being saved, we still sin. But again, that sin doesn't prevent us from sanctification. Repentance must proclaim the divorce. So repentance is what transforms lives. It keeps the motor of godly living running. Finally, resolve to seek God earnestly and reinforce that resolve with watchful prayer. And don't go it alone. Find a brother or sister in Christ. Resolve personally. Resolve with one another. Resolve as a church. Don't neglect him, but rather hasten to him. Let us come to the fountain which is opened for all to seek cleansing. Let us by faith in Jesus' blood wash and be clean. May the Lord help us to do so for Jesus' sake. Amen.